Hello, it's Friday 18th of August. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be discussing all pop music and things tourism as Taylor Swift's fever grips the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today we're going to take a dive into the hot topic of pop music tourism, which is a white hot talking point in the region. It has been for a couple of months now since Taylor Swift and Coldplay each announced runs of six live shows, each in Singapore. Uh, Coldplay is also playing in some other cities across the region. And all that is taking place in early 2024. So Hannah, have you bought your tickets yet? <laughs> I think I'm too late, aren't I? Uh, no, I would have loved to have done, but no. You? Which one would you have gone for, Taylor Swift or Coldplay or both? Uh, I think Taylor Swift. I, I mean, Coldplay, you know, my, my parents, <laughs> they're cooler than me. They've seen Coldplay several times in concert. They said they're pretty good, but I think Taylor would put on a really good show. Yeah, I have to agree. I think I would have, I would have gone for that one. So that's where we'll start, shall we? Should we talk about Taylor Swift mm-hmm. and in Singapore? Big topic. She's playing six shows in March 2024 as part of her global tour, the Eras Tour. Uh, she's also stopping off in some other destinations in Asia Pacific, in Tokyo, Sydney, and Melbourne. She's not playing anywhere else in Southeast Asia. And that's what's really generating the buzz, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she is, you know, Singapore is kind of owning that that market, if you like, for interest in Taylor Swift in Southeast Asia. And I guess not only Southeast Asia, but you're probably looking at um, other destinations within East Asia flying in Western Australia, perhaps. If they can't get tickets in Perth, perhaps they'll fly into Singapore. It's an easy hop for them. Even India, you know, there's 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 so much interest, I think, in in Taylor Swift that Singapore have done really well somehow scoring that that position of being the only Southeast Asian destination to hold a Taylor Swift concert. Yeah, it's a monumental tour. It's a first tour for five years, started in the US in Arizona, Glendale, Arizona, back in March 2023. It actually finishes, it ends next year, November 2024 in Toronto. Uh, and the Singapore leg, as I said, you know, takes place in March. It's several months away, but it's still dominating not just the the music uh, scene, but it's dominating the tourism scene. So should we take a little bit more into Taylornomics? Why, why is this happening? Why is this such a big thing right now? And I guess that we go back to to the origins, Hannah. You know, Taylor Swift's tour in the US has been a massive economic success. It has. And, you know, if you're, you're just reading the stats now, you can see why Singapore is probably pretty excited to be the host. So this era's tour is set to become the biggest concert tour in US history with a potential gross of $1 billion. I mean, that's huge. And you look at some of the, you know, some of the destinations in in the US, her impact. So Las Vegas, we're reporting that her concert, you know, boosted visitor numbers back to Las Vegas to pre-pandemic levels. Um, You have all-time record for hotel rooms being occupied in Chicago, in Minneapolis, governments you know you know regional governments throughout the US really talking about this economic impact that Taylor Swift concerts has been having yeah absolutely even the Philadelphia Federal Reserve noted it in its uh, economic roundup uh, a couple of months ago I think maybe it was in July uh, and it quoted it said despite the slowing recovery in tourism in the region overall this is Philadelphia one contact highlighted that May was the strongest month for hotel revenue in Philadelphia since the onset of the pandemic, in large part 
due to the influx of guests for the Taylor Swift concerts in the city. Yeah, I mean, and I think what a lot of this is down to is, of course, you know, there's the the hotel revenue that people need to stem somewhere to stay when they go to the concert, but it's all that add-on revenue as well. You know, when when you read some of the articles about what's going on in the US, it's all of these other little businesses that have sprung up around it. So there was some examples of, of Taylor Swift donuts that you can buy and everyone's going crazy for those of, of special places where you can, I think it was, you could get your hair braided or you, you get special bracelets um, for Taylor Swift. And even people who are not necessarily attending the concert itself, they don't have tickets, but they're still going to those cities because they, they kind of want to be near where Taylor Swift is. So you've got all of these gatherings of fans outside of the, the concert areas as well. So actually that, that economic impact is huge. Yeah, and the, the hype factor is just immense, isn't it? I mean, it, we said that it's, you know, she is a bona fide megastar, global megastar. It's her first tour for five years. And everything that she does makes headlines. There was uh, the case in Seattle, I think, last month, where seismologists said that the the, the concert actually created uh, the equivalent of a magnitude 2.3 uh, earthquake. Now, you know, this this isn't unusual you know rock concerts have done that before but this just all adds into this huge global hype of taylor swift's concerts which as we know is is coming to singapore and singapore itself has been very very astute i think in the way that it's been marketing um these concerts ahead of time so it's you know it, it announced quite close together didn't it that it was getting Coldplay and taylor swift around about the same time in 2024 mm. uh, and it just generated this hype and so we've started to see uh, and you've been following this up quite closely, how this is actually impacting demand for hotel rooms. And as you say, the add-on uh, economic benefits of you know, retail and, and merchandising and F&B as well. Um, so should we take a little bit more of a deep dive to what's going to be happening in Singapore? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you were quoting just now the Philadelphia Federal Reserve talking about how Swift's tour is, is going to boost that, you know, the, the overall economy. But already the Singapore Ministry of Trade and Industry has been talking about the concert industry in Singapore, um, already noted that it's expected to attract a significant number of visitors from the region. Um, and they're seeing concerts as, a, you know, they're, they're calling it a very large economic value added activity. And it's just what we were saying, you know, they're saying they're going to stay in our hotels, take the opportunity to tour Singapore. Um, it's not just about that two to three hours at the concert. It's that huge, bigger picture, that multiplier effect. Um, and, you know, if if uh, Batam Island from Indonesia, Johor in Malaysia are smart, they should also look to how they can take advantage of that opportunity too to get some of those spillover visitors to, to go stay in those destinations, which are inevitably going to be a much, much cheaper than Singapore will be during that period. Yeah, and as we were just saying off air just before we came on, you know, I think that the real interesting point about this is Singapore's exclusivity, isn't it? It's the only stop in the region in Southeast Asia that she's playing, six nights. That equates to around 330,000 seats are available for her six concerts. You listen to Malaysian radio, Malaysian pop radio at the moment, and it's all they're talking about is who's got tickets, who can't get tickets, whose friends in different countries of, uh, in Southeast Asia can and can't get tickets. There's a lot of different marketing tactics being used by banks, by brands um, that have access to tickets that they can create, you know, sort of gamified or incentivized promotions for their customers to be able to, to win or to earn tickets for Taylor Swift concerts. It, it's just become its own kind of regional mini tourism economy and i think this is 
actually, I mean, we said this beforehand, it's a very 2023 story, this sort of post-pandemic experience-based tourism. Because when you think about it, you know, when we talk about tourism generally, I mean, generally, there are whole different rafts to tourism, but generally you're talking and destinations and tourism boards are looking at people choosing their destination, choosing their holiday, choosing the way they travel. But this kind of takes that away. This is actual people are choosing the experience. They're choosing the, the artist. And it happens to be in a particular destination. So then you build your three or four days trip around that. But you don't necessarily choose the destination. You choose where Taylor Swift is playing. Yeah, exactly so in this case, isn't it? You know, if she's only got one, two stops in, in Asia, Singapore and Japan, then okay, you might, you might weigh up Tokyo versus Singapore if you have that, that opportunity. But mainly it's going to be, where can I actually just get tickets based on that? Like you say, then then you build out that holiday. Um, so we've been seeing, you know, online travel agencies, people like Kluk, for example, um, benefiting pretty well out of this because they managed to um, have the rights to package these tickets together with hotels um, and, and to, to form a whole concert ticketing package, which really boosted their sales. You know, they reported they they saw sales in the first half of 2023. In, in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore grow 50% year on year. They they didn't break that down, you know, which bit is directly attributable to Taylor Swift. But they're talking about, you know, they, they are pretty confident that this is going to continue. They see these returns at these mega events, they're calling them in Singapore. And I think that they, they're really seeing that that's a very interesting way for them to, to drive revenue, to package all of these items of tourism all of these different tourism elements together into one very sellable package because you've got that huge incentive of having a Taylor Swift ticket. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as, as you said there, you know, it, it's it, the interesting thing, I think, is before, if, if we were talking about this maybe five or six years ago, we would have been talking about the impact on airline seats and hotel room uh, booking rooms. But as you said there, you know, this experiences sector, the segment now, um, and, and the way that Kluck is talking about this, you know, that that has really, really developed. So this this whole experience package uh, is the way that Singapore is promoting these tours, and, and quite rightly so. I mean, the, the, the potential for generating huge revenues is definitely there. Again, coming back to the fact that it's a 2023 story, you know, the two probably megastars that are touring the world at the moment are Taylor Swift and Coldplay. But we haven't yet had announcements for Beyonce's tour, which is coming to Asia probably next year. We don't yet know the the destinations that she'll be playing. I'm pretty sure she'll be playing Singapore. But you know, this is this that will just roll on now. And I think the sort of the groundwork is being done for this to, as you said, become a mega event. You know, more than annually, this this could happen on and on and on. And then we will see, as we'll come to in a moment, these the way that you can actually turn music tourism not just about concerts but specific events curated events and that, that brings us on i guess to to what the weekend is doing also in singapore yeah i mean so the universal studios singapore has announced that they are teaming up with the weekend for halloween horror nights which is, it seems like quite a, a unique collaboration but they're essentially um having remixes of the songs uh, from Dawn FM, his 2020 album After Hours, as the soundtrack to this whole ride. Um, so, it, you know, they, they're calling it pop music glam and this haunted house inspired by this music um, and really playing up this angle of linking you know, music stars with attractions, which 
I think it is is fairly unique for Southeast Asia. I have not seen this um, so much being being promoted before. Have you? No, and I think it's very clever. I think you're right. You know, this is very, very tailored towards the personality of the performer. You know, The Weeknd is a very, very dark performer. He's talked since the beginning of his career, really. He uses this phrase, purgatory of pain, about how his hedonistic lifestyle caused him so much angst to him and the people around him. He's now turned that into a more sort of horror-based show. And he uses elements, I think, from a South Korean horror show as well. So he brings in lots of different elements. It's very, very clever. And I think this is moving, Hannah, as we said. So we've got these these big mega concerts, and we've now got these curated events taking place at Universal Studios. And what you could see in future going forward is you could see more of these kind of themed residency type events, you know, perhaps in a similar way as, you, as we've seen for decades in Las Vegas, where you have the, the global um, stars play residencies at um, at the big casinos. I mean, you could really see that happening. There are so many new casino venues being promoted or or being built in uh, across Asia, and they're going to need ways to attract new new visitors. You've got the two you know integrated resorts in in Singapore, and I just wonder whether we're now moving quite closely towards residencies because they they really do bring in the numbers week in week out. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... I'd not really thought about that, but it could definitely go that way, couldn't it? And I suppose these these big concerts are, are that proof of concept, aren't they? They're they're the proof to these these huge music stars that you can see that demand in Singapore, and that ticket systems will crash, t- ticket sales will sell out through to demand, and Singapore being that hub of Southeast Asia, very easy to get to. It's uh, an untapped market, really. Absolutely. So we've talked there about Coldplay, we've talked about Taylor Swift, we've talked about The Weeknd. And in some ways, Hannah, those are imported stories into Asia, you know, big international megastars from the US, from the UK. But I think the best story in the region at the moment is Blackpink. You know, that's a made in Asia story. We had BTS for, what, a decade, you know, the world's biggest boy band, in, in some cases, probably the world's biggest touring band. That that band is currently on high artists because two of them are actually doing that national service but blackpink have taken up the mantle haven't they and their tour in asia recently has created both headlines and this was created a lot of tourism as well particularly if we look at their their two nights that they played recently in hanoi yeah exactly and so you know this this was a an interesting concept because for a little while it even looked like it might be in danger of of not happening there was some some controversy i think over the way various maps that blackpink had were depicting various territories and, and so on, which is, of course, very controversial in Vietnam. But they managed to resolve that, and they held these these two shows in Hanoi. Um, and so, you know, about 67,000 spectators packed the event. And Hanoi Department of Tourism said that the city saw about 170,000 visitors during those two days of the show. They estimated about 30,000 were foreigners. And in all, they spent about $630 billion Vietnamese dong. Um, I mean, of course, Vietnamese dong is always in, in the millions and billions, but still 630 billion Vietnamese dong, it, that's not a small amount. No, just just sounds brilliant, doesn't it? 630 billion is just a, such a great number. But, you know, this is, I think this is the, the current culmination of just the popularity of K-pop, K-culture, K-everything, really, uh, which is really, really popular in across the region in Southeast Asia, particularly in Vietnam, in Indonesia, and the Philippines probably the most. But there are so many elements to this Blackpink show, which I think are really interesting. One, as, as we've said, you know, Blackpink did play several venues um, around the region. It wasn't just uh, Vietnam that they played. But the one in Hanoi, I think, sort of sparked 
uh, so much interest and actually even got, you know, the, the government involved that the, the chairman of the Hanoi People's Committee sent a thank you letter to the band afterwards, noting that the concert concerts had enhanced Hanoi's image and position as a peaceful, safe and friendly destination. And he added that Hanoi expects to hold more similar large scale events to strengthen the cultural and entertainment industry deserving of its position as modern, civilized, and devoted capital city. So, you know, some of that is just verbiage, but essentially what it's saying is that Hanoi and and, uh, Vietnam want to host more big mega events as well. Yeah, I mean, it was really black pig fever. Even Da Nang Airport, they changed their color scheme for a little while as well to black and pink, even though black pink were not even going to Da Nang Airport. You know, they were just capitalizing on that that black pink fever, like you're saying, and you know, the, I think now Vietnam has that taste for that, that they would love to gear themselves up as many other destinations in the region would to be that regional hub for concerts um, and for those international stars. Yeah, absolutely. And for South Korea, you know, it has just this huge soft power of its of its K-pop scene. Um, you know, it, it's able to export its biggest bands, you know, not just, I mean, Blackpink and BTS are at the forefront of this, but there are scores of other bands that are really popular across this region, boy bands and girl bands. And, you know, they draw they draw crowds to, to their concerts, but it, it works the other way, doesn't it, for South Korea? It really is an attraction to go to South Korea and to, to see destinations that are, you know, feature in, in um, videos and movies and and places that the, the stars actually hang out in. Quite interestingly, as we were putting this show together yesterday, Hannah, we got an email um, from a PR agency, which didn't know that we were putting this show together, but they actually sent uh, an email on behalf of one of the world's leading uh, hotel groups trying to promote some of the hotels that K-pop stars hang out in when they're in Southeast Asia. So I think it was in Singapore, Bangkok, and Hong Kong. So you can see this whole thing is just gaining momentum now like a rolling start. Uh, k-pop across the region in south korea itself but also in southeast asia yeah i mean and like you say you know um blackpink's lisa who of course is originally thai um her visit back to thailand in june 2023 was extensively covered um by the press so she went to visit ayutthaya which is a you know a heritage city she she was wearing a traditional sarong and demand for those sarong sales just it just went crazy you know the the shop where she bought them ended up with a one month waiting list uh tourism authority of thailand who we know are ever hot on uh on trends launched a campaign even to do exactly that to let lisa's fans know more about the places she visited and to put together an itinerary kind of guiding them around so they could see the same things that that lisa had seen so it it's an entire industry and i think one that if you're outside of the region, yes, of course, I know that there, that there is interest in K-pop in other parts of the world, in, in Europe and the US, but it is, it is on, a, I think, perhaps a different level here in Asia, isn't it, really? Yeah, I think it's really impossible to overstate just how big K-culture is in, in, in the region. Just, you know, everything from cosmetics through TV shows, movies particularly TV shows, and, but especially the, the pop music and the superstardom that these people have. Here's a, here's a bit of a trivia quiz for you, Hannah. You mentioned that Lisa visited Thailand. Can you name the four members of Blackpink? I can't. You know what? It's, it's shameful, but I'm sorry. I can't. Can you? But you've got them in front of you, so presumably oh, you can. Well, I can. I can, actually. <laughs> but anyway, it's yeah, Lisa, Jisoo, Jenny, and Rosé. But if you actually, um, if you Google their, their personal profiles and you look at the number of international brands that the four of them advocate for, ambassadors, um, model for. 
it's an enormous list of global brands. And those global brands aren't just really um, appealing to to the fans of Blackpink. You know, they're trying to draw global attention to these kind of icons of music, of fashion, of lifestyle. Everything that they do is on social media is you know is monitored every every single second. They are the ultimate influencers of the modern era, I think, and BTS were that as well. So as you said, absolutely right. It's a, just a major industry. And, you know, as we were saying, it's one that other countries in Southeast Asia want to to tap into, but they're facing some issues. Um, so Indonesia, you know, they have one Coldplay concert and I think they, of course, they they wanted more. Um, and so they're now set to uh, Santiago Uno, uh, ever the dynamic tourism minister, is um, looking now, what's that process of concept permits like? Um, how can that be digitalized? How can that be sped up? Because they're seeing that that's actually one of the factors, those kind of permissions, that ease of licensing, time of licensing, the cost of actually getting the permit. These are some of the issues that are preventing these international concerts from coming to to cities like Jakarta. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. There was a good article in the Rakyat Post, which is an online media here in Malaysia, looking at some of the reasons that Singapore is attracting the megastars, not just uh, to, to play there in, in favor over uh, Kuala Lumpur, for example, but how they get more shows. And they actually looked into a lot of the different aspects, the, the, the politics aspect. But as you said, the licensing aspects and what it found out, it did some research that it looked into the guidelines, the, the agency guidelines here, if you want to do a live performance or do filming in Malaysia, and the guidelines are 74 pages long. And it compared those to Singapore, and they're just four pages long. So I think that shows you where Singapore has actually streamlined the way that it does business um, with international movie and pop star uh, agencies, just to make it more simplified. Mm. I mean, and of course, Malaysia has faced this kind of recent controversy where they, they have a, an annual music festival called the Good Vibes Festival which was ended up being cancelled on the very first day uh, due to a controversy with um, British band in 1975 who kissed uh, a male um, fellow performer on the stage. And, you know, that ended up with the concert being the whole festival, which was the whole weekend, um, being immediately cancelled. Um, so, you know, the, these kind of incidents, I think, and like you say, this this seventy four page, seventy five page, however long book it is of rules, it doesn't necessarily make bands feel ah, this is going to be an easy place to perform. It probably puts, I imagine, the the management a little bit more on edge um, for fear of stepping foul of some of these rules. Yeah, and I think you know the, these big international concerts, you know, these global tours that you have from the megastars, you know, they're kind of plug and play. They have these massive shows that cost a huge amount of money to put together in terms of the technology, the choreography, the staging, you know, everything that's put together. And when they're played in the huge concert arenas, the stadiums around the world, you basically drop them in, you do the same performance, and then you go and you, you do it in the next city. But if you have to overload that with a lot of different extra requirements i mean it just makes it more challenging to to do what is a you know a multi-billion dollar industry um you don't really want to have to adapt it too much you really just want to be able to plug and play at any destination you're playing yeah exactly so it's 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 all of these factors that, that come into play 
One interesting area, though, where Malaysia does seem to have a bit of traction for international stars is drawing Indian singers um, to Malaysia. And of course, there's a, a huge Malaysian Indian population here. They've had big bands like a South Indian singer um, Deva, who came to KL uh, the 3rd of June, saw 20,000 fans. It was something like 51 songs. He certainly had 60 different Indian singers as part of this concert. It was a huge thing. Not so much reported in the press, perhaps, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the international press, it's, it's all about the Taylor Swifts and the, the Coldplay's of the world. Um, but Malaysia does seem to have a certain appeal for these Indian singers, and perhaps that's its niche. You know, maybe, maybe it goes for that instead, and perhaps that's a smarter move. Maybe we'll see different countries kind of specialising in what types of music stars they're attracting and the crowd, therefore, who are coming in. I think that's a really good point because I think that really shows the diversity of pop uh, culture, not just pop music culture across the region. And you mentioned the, the Indian Indian singer Diva who, pl who played here a couple, of, a couple of months ago. Malaysia has been for many, many years uh, an, a, a very popular filming destination for Bollywood movies. And they obviously have a strong uh, musical and dance component. Um, so, you, you know, we've seen over the years, the biggest stars from, from the Indian movies have come and filmed here. And that has a, also has an impact on, on tourism as well. You know, that movie scene in India is a big generator of tourism around the world. You know, if you look at some of the movies going back even 20, 30 years, you know, they were filmed on mountaintops in Switzerland or in Australia or in the US, you know, and they, they, they've had a, a big cultural impact going back. They don't, probably don't get as much um, attention as maybe the, the K-pop thing does, but Bollywood has been a, a huge generator of tourism from India. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're in an interesting cross point, aren't we, here in Southeast Asia, where we have the, the K pop influence, the Bollywood influence, the Western Hemisphere influence as well. All of these kind of culminate in this very uh, diverse interests of the populations here. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to talk briefly about Indonesia because Indonesia has a really, really interesting musical culture. It generally tends to be seen more as a rock music culture, but it also has a pretty strong jazz culture as well. Uh, and it, the Jakarta, Jakarta, the capital, has hosted since 2005 a really, really important jazz festival called Java Jazz. It's an annual festival. Obviously, it didn't, wasn't held during the, the pandemic. Um, but over the years, you know, some of the big stars in soul, jazz, R&B have played that. You think of names like Herbie Hancock, John Legend, Santana have all played over the years. But in recent years, that festival has turned more to local acts, particularly from Indonesia, but also across the region. It's a big, big festival. It draws a lot of jazz fans to the country each year. I think it's hosted in June. And this year, quite interestingly, two of the stages were sponsored by one international hotel brand. The main stage was sponsored by Accor. And another of the stages which promoted Indonesian young and up-and-coming jazz stars was promoted as Wonderful Indonesia by the Tourism Board. So you can see that, you know, jazz, Indian music, you know, it's more than just, as you say, international pop music. There are so many different angles uh, to this pop culture trend and this experience of wanting to go and see um, live music. And even though some of these festivals have been going for quite a long time, you know, they are going to evolve into new ways of attracting visitors, I guess, over the years. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's also interesting if you look even at how some of the ministries of tourism, uh, what they cluster underneath them. So if you look at Indonesia, it's the Ministry of, of Tourism and the Creative Economy. So, of course, you know, music, the arts is all included within that. Malaysia is, is pretty similar. Malaysia Ministry of um, 
culture, arts and tourism. Um, and so I, I suppose then the, there are those synergies then really that, that the tourism ministries really see how arts festivals, music festivals, um, just promotion in general of, of the art scene um, can enhance, can elevate um, the tourism experience. And one example of that is, you know, the Sarawak Rainforest World Music Festival. So that's been held since 1998. And, you know, it's it's Sarawak's in Malaysia. It's really the, you know, the, the star festival, but it's a festival with more of a, a message behind it. And that, that message is that, you know, it's advocating for responsible tourism. It wants to try and become one of the world's most sustainable, eco-friendly festivals. Um, and just with this other goal of, you know, celebrating diverse music, indigenous music, indigenous arts, indigenous culture in the one place. And I, I think it's, it's interesting how that can also, you know, the, these kind of events can also take on that, that larger meaning behind them as well, rather than simply being entertained. Yeah, totally agree. And I think also that the fusing of the of the different parts of the region, particularly Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, you know, we we talked a lot, Hannah, a year ago when when um, Northeast Asia was about to reopen and China reopened at the beginning of this year. You know that that decoupling of the air markets between Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia that happened, but which are starting to come back together. And you know, Northeast Asian countries have quite a strong music festival culture. You think we've talked about K-pop, you know the there are K-pop concerts all the time in South Korea. Japan has Fuji Rock each year, each summer, which is one of the biggest festivals in the world. In China, we've started to see a lot of rock music festivals this summer. It's become quite a hot trend. Uh, Hong Kong has Clock and Flap. Taiwan is promoting a new uh, music festival as well. So you know, music tourism is, is something that is going to unite the region. And you know, as we go forward, we'll probably see more interconnection of, uh, of visitors in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia attending events in each part of the of the region yeah absolutely it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out as we go into 2024 so that brings us to the end of the show for this week we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our linkedin page at the southeast asia travel show yep and as always you can catch up with the southeast asia travel shows full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back next week to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you then. <laughs>